welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have Michael Ignatieff. He's the author of Isaiah Berlin and the Warrior's Honor, as well as over 15 other acclaimed books, including a memoir, the Russian album, and the Booker finalist novel, Scar Tissue. He writes regularly for the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, and the London Review of Books. Former head of Canada's Liberal Party, director of the Carr Center of Human Rights at Harvard's Kennedy School, and president of Central European University. He's currently a professor at CEU in Vienna. And his newest book, available now, is called On Consolation, Finding Solace in Dark Times. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for coming on. Great to be here. Absolutely. And then so to start with a, with a quote from a passage from Michael's book, Michael wrote, the essential element of consolation is hope, the belief that we can recover from loss, defeat and disappointment, and that the time that remains to us, however short, offers us possibilities to start again, failing perhaps, but as Beckett said, failing better. It is this hope that allows us, even in the face of tragedy, to remain unbowed. When we seek consolation, we are seeking more than just a way to feel better. Serious losses can cause us to question the larger design of our existence, the fact that time flows inexorably in one direction, and that while we still hope for the future, we cannot unlive the past. Serious reversals cause us to reckon with the fact that the world is not fair, and that in the larger domain of politics and the smaller world of our private lives, justice can remain cruelly out of reach. To be consoled is to make peace with the order of the world without renouncing our hopes for justice. Finally, and most difficult of all, loss and defeat force us to confront our own limitations. This is where consolation can be hardest to achieve. In the face of our failures, we are tempted to take refuge in illusion. There is no true illusion. There is no true consolation in illusion. So we must try, as Vaclav Havel said, to live in truth. So I love that so much. And uh, so, yeah, I think in terms of how most of us struggle, it's struggling between reality and between pretty much how we want or how we envision reality to be or what we want it to be fundamentally. So you kind of talk about these distinctions between consolation and comfort. And so oftentimes we think of the we think of both as the same. And we think, you know, consolation is essentially this way of viewing the world that makes us feel better about our lives. It makes us feel sort of safe, right? But ultimately what you're saying is that that sense of comfort isn't necessarily consolation, that these are two different constructs. So can we start with that? And can you tell us what the difference is between the two? Well, you, you've you've got to the heart of the matter. Look, if if I wanted to comfort you and we were good friends, um, I'd buy you a beer and we'd sit possibly in silence. And if I knew you really well and you were an old friend, I might, you know, put put my arm on your shoulder. Uh, comfort wouldn't require anything other than just us being together and me conveying wordlessly, look, I know what you're going through. If I was to console you, on the other hand, I'd have to open my mouth. I'd have to say something. I'd have to say, um, if it was a you'd lost a, a loved one, I'd have to talk about the loved one. I'd have to talk about your relationship. If I knew anything about it, I'd have to try and find some meaning that would help you bear it. And so mm -hmm. consolation is different from comfort in the sense that it it's trying to find meaning for a loss a grief, a failure, uh, a failing. And finding meaning for these things is really hard. And I think we all know that one of the reasons I wanted to write about consolation is it takes us to the limits of language. I think a lot of times in our life when we're, we sit with someone who just feels inconsolable, we discover that words 
words won't help. So this this book I've written is not about happy talk. I mean, there are lots of times the consolation just fails, mm -hmm. but to the degree it is distinct from comfort, it is an attempt to give meaning to suffering. So it's sort of like the Nietzsche quote, when somebody has a why to live, essentially, they, they continue living. And the idea is, is that um, in terms of when we think about when we think about the purpose of existence, we think that there's nothing fundamentally beneath us. This is existential idea that there's a groundlessness to it. So when we're thinking about the why, essentially, what we're doing is we're creating it for ourselves, or we're kind of helping each other create it. Hmm. Yeah, we're trying to create a why. I think it's very, it's, that's a good way to put it. Um, and it's hard because a lot of the granites dropped away. I mean, if if you're a Christian believer, a religious believer, whatever religion, it's given you granite. It's given you a structure. It's given you an afterwards, that is paradise. It's given you a before. It's given you a divine presence. It's given you a whole bunch of things which for thousands of years consoled people. For most of us, that's dropped away. Not for everybody. There may be people listening to this who are already irritated because they actually believe this stuff. And I have nothing but respect for people who believe that stuff. My dad believed it. it my brother believed it. I just don't. So my problem, and I maybe I think your problem, is how do you create meaning when there's no granite? And 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 that tells me that we do it together. This is a social construction. Mm. We find meanings together uh, to get us to get us through things, and um, and it sometimes fails. Uh, but that's the process we're we're in. It's very human, very social, and very fragile. Yeah, the fragile part, I think, is super important. So now thinking about just in terms of in the context of religion, and I'm actually I have Jordan Peterson in mind. So Peterson would argue he would say something like, well, you know, humans aren't good enough or are smart enough to figure out what meaning is. They don't know what the rules are, what the rules should be. So the reason why the Enlightenment struggled is and the reason why we have all these different wars or whatever, at least I think that's how he would conceptualize it, is because we haven't fundamentally created a set of rules that could apply to every religion or every organization. I'm sorry, every structure, every organization, uh, every country fundamentally. You know, so the thinking here is that, okay, so we have uh, kind of the religious background that says this is what meaning is. And then we have, uh, I guess, the more sort of secular, uh, atheistic, uh, whatever you want to call it, I guess, you know, because I, I would describe myself as an atheist, uh, an atheist is a background that says, well, no, it's kind of up to us to create it together. So there's this fundamental tension between absolute, the absolute and the relative. So we have on the one side, people saying, well, there's this sort of God, this God's law, right? And consolation is within God. So people will say something like, well, God has a plan, or essentially, you know, God willed it this way. But then on the other hand, for a lot of people, and Michael, this is what you would call maybe the distinction, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So maybe this would be distinction between false and true consolation. Uh, you would have people who would say something along the lines of, well, that doesn't comfort me. That's not good enough for me. I don't believe that. And it actually feels kind of flawed to me. Right. And, and there are uh, limits, right, to to reason, right, or conceptions, right? Even, even the absolute, even what you might um, call the rules, right? They, they have a limit to them. They might not always be consoling, right? There's also a sort of a faith aspect. Yeah. Like I, I believe you highlighted that in uh, when comparing um, uh, Boethius' uh, writings and then how Dante uh, took inspiration from his writings and sort of when he, when he uh, sort of conveyed uh, heaven in the Paradiso, the figures that he saw it, it weren't they weren't exactly clear as almost as if, as if to say 
there's a limit to the conceptual or or reason. There's something beyond reason. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think you're you're taking us into uh, deep and dark water here. I, I think one of the things I was trying to say is that uh, we got to think historically here. Mm-hmm. Um, if if you're stuck in the present and you're just thinking in the present, uh, you think there's no granite, there's no bottom. Uh, you think if you're an atheist or you're an unbeliever, there's no <laughs> heaven up there, there's no hell, there's nothing. Uh, and when we make meaning, it's all very contingent and fragile, and it will work for you, but it won't work for you, and all that. All that's true. But if you step back historically, and that's what I was trying to do in this book, and you reach back through the human experience, or at least the parts of it that end up in books, um, you begin to see deep continuities in the structure of meanings that we've been put together. You know, I, I'm not a believer, but I can read the Psalms, and the book starts with the Psalms, and think, these words are speaking to me. This person, and we don't know who it was, or these persons, understood what it was to be desperate and lonely and frightened. And that connection across time um, and the recurrence of these themes across time is about as much granite as I think we're going to get. Mm-hmm. So I have this deep sense, it, it's a very strong emotion in me that um, we are historical beings and that because we are historical beings, we have access to this vast inventory of human wisdom and knowledge and sorrow and experience. And it's there for us, and <laughs> we badly need to use it. The, the thing that makes us unconsolable in the present is this myth-making we do, which says we're completely alone, we're completely marooned, the gods are dead, the ancient wisdom is unavailable, we're facing this terrifying future. All this way in which we talk ourselves into a kind of solitude that I just don't believe exists. I actually think, uh, you know, I got books in this room, and the books are tremendously important source of consolation. And I, I think it's a little bookish to say this. I, I don't want to over push this. Someone listening to this program might think, this guy is telling me that books are going to help. I've just lost my mom or my dad or my brother, and he's telling me to go read a book. Give me a break. Right? I get that. I understand. Cool. Saying something different. I'm saying that a kind of philosophical orientation we need to have about ourselves is we're here for a very brief period of time, and it's a bit scary, but there is an unbroken chain of people behind us who've been through it all, who know it all. There are no surprises here. It's it's all been experienced before, and we badly need to reach back to this stuff. And so I've tried in this book, in a couple of places, it's, I don't claim this is systematic history of consolation. There's no such thing because the sources of consolation are literally infinite in our culture. But I picked a few, few places, 18 chapters, just to say, you go back to these lives, you go back to this experience, and you will hear deep human continuity that you can use and that might might be consoling 
Um, and so that's the claim I would make because I, we badly need to re, re get hold of our, of our historical connection to the past. And that's about the only consolation the book is, is trying to offer. Right. Uh, what's your favorite story of consolation from the book? That was actually something I was curious about as I was reading, because, you know, we have Marcus Aurelius, Dante. Yeah, Joe. and can I also add another question? And which one do you think was the most effective for you? Ah, mm -hmm. cool. Oh, it depends on the in the circumstances. You know, I, I was in politics for a while. I derived deep consolation from Václav Havel because he was in politics. You know, so, you know, it depends on the situation. Um, I was very, very moved, in fact, and astonished by to discover that Cicero wrote these very kind of masterful letters of consolation to male friends, and he was the master of a certain thing we call Stoicism. And then his then his daughter died, and he fell apart. And what I found moving about that story was, a man who was the master of a rhetoric of consolation found that rhetoric completely useless <laughs> when he suffered deep personal grief. And that I think is an instructive story because it it should make me and make everybody else very humble about what consolation can do. We have these rhetorics, we have these traditions from the past, but when that bolt of lightning hits us and flattens us, no book's gonna help us. And that's, in a sense, what, what the Cicero story says. If you ask me who I loved spending time with, um, I, I think it would be Michel de Montaigne, hmm. partly because he's so funny and partly because he, um, when you put Montaigne back in his time, he's living through a brutal religious civil war in which people are slaughtering them all around his, you know, his home. He's also living through a plague, and I'd actually forgotten that he was in the middle of a plague. I wrote some of this book during COVID, so the plague stuff in Montana is very arresting. I mean, this is a guy who manages kind of equanimity and calm and sense of humor and a sense of grace in the middle of catastrophic cir circumstances. I love being in his his uh, company. Um, there are lots of you know, lot, lots of others. Uh, so um, I'm not sure I have a favorite, but each one was a moment of discovery for me. I, what I loved, I loved about writing the book was just discovering these, these men and women uh, in a, in a moment of crisis, finding the resources and the strength to go on. Finally, there's one, one person in the book who I actually met and I think huh. I need to mention that the, the last essay in the book is about an absolutely astounding woman called Cicely Saunders, who more than any single person invented the hospice movement. And I met her at the end of her life. And I thought she was one of the most astounding people I've ever met. This tall, austere, extremely funny, incredibly clever woman with one of these cut glass English accents that kind of puts you off. But when you got to know her, you just, I've never met a more passionate and fantastic person, but her connection with consolation is, is very direct, which she had the insight that for there to be consolation at the end of a life, 
there has to be a place and there has to be time. And she created a place, the hospice, and through pain management, tried to create time so that if you were in a terminal illness, you had the time to get your family together, to heal some of the wounds of family life, and to begin to say goodbye and make your peace with the end of your life. And of all the people in the book, she may have made the most direct contribution to consolation in, in the modern world, because there are people all over the world now ending their lives in hospices. And, you know, that's thanks to a wonderful woman. Wow. Yeah. So can we talk a little bit about that? So what was her perspective on it? And can we now start to tie this into what philosophy's purpose is supposed to be? Because we often think, well, philosophy tells us how to live well, but actually, conversely too, it actually teaches us how to die well as well. Yes. Well, what to just to follow up on Cicely Saunders, one of the, she had read all these great works about philosophy teaching you how to live and how to die. And she was a very practical woman. She said, yeah, that's all true. That philosophy stuff's true. But let me tell you, what you also need is good analgesics. You need good pain management yeah. because no one is going to die philosophically if they're screaming with pain. So she thought deeply about how to get drug regimens that would leave you conscious, but not racked with pain. And that's a huge part of what good end of care end-of-life care has to involve. That's number one. Number two, um, you have to create an environment which is out of the hospital. You know, the, the hospital is not a place in which you want to die. The, the, you know, the machines are clanging. They're, you know, I happen to have lost my brother over Christmas in a hospital, and I just, I so regret that he died in a hospital. I just wish we could have got him somewhere where he could have a little peace and quiet. So she understood mm -hmm. that too. You want to create a place where people can have some peace and quiet. And you want to have a place where they can bring their loved ones together. Because here's the, the other thing that I learned from her, which seems to me really important. I've always thought of death as the end of life. It's the end. There's nothing more for you to do. It's over. She said, no, no, that, that you haven't understood what your dying is all about. You're dying is a moment in which you, if you can do it, can help others to take away their fear of dying. A great death, a good death, is a death which takes the fear of dying away from those who watch it. Now, that's an extraordinary thought. I, I don't know about you, but that made a big difference to me. I don't know whether when my time comes, I'll be able to do that. But I sure know what I would like. I would like my kids or my wife to be around me. And I'd like to be able to say, if, if we get the chance, it isn't so bad. It's going to be okay. You know, I'm, I'm going, but don't be frightened of it. it. It's all right. Now, I don't know whether I can do that, but I certainly know now what my objective is. And I think that would be consoling to the people I leave behind. Now, that's a kind of heroic ambition, and but I don't think it's an unreasonable one. And Cicely Saunders saw this happening constantly. Brave people, good people, very ordinary people dying. To die with dignity was to die in a way that said, don't be frightened. You know, you can do this, you know, and that's a 
you know, if there is a, a really important consolation in life, that that's it. And I, I learned that from her and God bless her. No, that's, that's beautiful, right? Uh, essentially the art of dying before dying, right? Yeah. Be, which is, you know, of course I, I say that, right. And I conceptually understand that. Uh, I mean, people I've, I've heard different people sort of make arguments that supposedly if you could, um, sort of uh, let go of your ego that would essentially be dying before you die but then i imagine that that is um you know especially depending what where you're at in life that could be maybe a temporary thing and then sometimes you know that ego comes back so it's almost like something that if somebody learns early i guess they would have to keep doing and redoing uh mm -hmm. it's not like this you know one shot you know that's it you've mastered the art of dying before you die but definitely it is beautiful you know uh, putting people together with their uh, families at the end and actually being able to set up that sort of environment and not a lot of people get that chance right some people just tragically sort of die but having those connections around being able to pass on you know some sort of wisdom or at least just spend the time together it's yeah. it's it's definitely nice for those who can have that well, I, yeah, I think she was saying um, death is not, you, you, you don't die alone or you shouldn't die alone. And in dying, it's a very social act. I don't think she wanted any of us to give up our egos. I, I thought she, she would want us, Cicely Saunders would want us to stay ourselves to the last moment um, mm. and and use that somehow to say it ain't so bad don't be frightened and uh, hmm. so she was uh, you know if you if you ask me who i learned most from I, I i guess it would be cicely saunders but i learned from all of them and i the other point about the book which i i would want to emphasize is that um i i don't i think you to to appreciate and love philosophical books you really need to place them back in the lives from which they came. Um, you know, we've all, lots of college courses prescribe Marcus Aurelius's meditations. Um, and yeah. I've read them when I was an undergraduate, but this time I noticed something about those meditations, which I hadn't noticed before, which is one of them is written in a place called Carnuntum. And Marcus Aurelius or someone scratched on the top of one of these sheets that survived that it was written in a place called Carnuntum. Well, Carnuntum happens to be somewhere between Bratislava and Vienna in this part of the world where I'm talking to you. And that means that Marcus Aurelius wrote this on the Danube frontier. And that tell, then tells you that he was writing in an army camp in the middle of a counterinsurgency war against the barbarians. Well, when you know that, you begin to really read it differently. This is the night thoughts of a warrior emperor uh, fighting a really bloody, awful, and eventually losing war. He's a man in his 50s. He's tired. He's exhausted. He says at one point, you know, I can't really eat very much. I don't sleep very well. Mm -hmm. When you get that context, you, I, I ended up having much more 
kind of respect and engagement for the text because I could see where it was coming from. And it, the other thing about um, this text is, is you forget one thing about emperors. Emperors can't trust anybody. Right. They yeah. can't talk to anybody. No one can console an emperor except one person, himself, mm -hmm. right? So I began to read the meditations as <laughs> an aging warrior king fighting a, in a desperate counterinsurgency campaign, consoling himself at night when he can't sleep. And, and that gave a kind of human dimension to the text uh, that I thought was important. And I've tried to do that throughout the throughout throughout the book to kind of resituate these texts in the lives that produce them. Because when you do that, you begin to have a real understanding of the stakes. Um, these are not just opinions, clever thoughts. These are things wrenched out of lives that are often in some degree of torment. Right. And what, what I appreciate so much about your work is uh, the kind of realism or realistic aspect of it. So now thinking about Marcus Aurelius, thinking about Stoicism, and I'm going to try to tie in a bunch of topics here together as best as I could. So now thinking about Marcus Aurelius, thinking about Stoicism, thinking about the purpose of philosophy to some to some extent, you know, in terms of living or dying well. So now I wonder, okay, so here's, let's say, this person uh, dying and sort of moving on and, you know, whatever that means, either moving on to another life or whatever, however you would kind of conceptualize death. But when we think about death, we often think about regret, right? So stoicism essentially, and I don't want to bastardize this because we've had Massimo Piliucci on, and he's pretty much said that, hey, it's not this extreme, but even though it's often conceptualized this way, that the purpose of stoicism is to genuinely be a virtuous person, right? Even though Massimo would argue, well, but you tend to forgive yourself so you understand that perfection isn't the goal. Granted, and I will definitely give him that. But the point is that, okay, so you have this person living with deep regret. And so a people, people often when they die, they do live with deep regrets because oftentimes life is so imperfect and you do have to make sometimes more callous decisions, sometimes more calculated decisions, but essentially decisions that you ultimately wish you didn't have to make. And, you know, most of the time we kind of explain it as a fact of reality as opposed to our character. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, Michael, when we think about your political career, you mentioned in, in other sort of uh, platforms before you mentioned that, well, you know, I don't want to necessarily be perfect and I don't want my politics to be perfect because in order to succeed, sometimes you do have to do somewhat of uh, of unsavory things, right? Things that you might not necessarily regret, but things that you don't don't necessarily wish your life had to sort of uh, kind of embody in whatever way. But my point is to say that when you do have regret, okay, how is it that we can kind of square the fact that on the one hand, let's say if we are Stoics, Stoicism will say, well, you have to be a virtuous person. But on the other hand, if let's say you are a politician, you sometimes have to do things if you're a little bit more Machiavellian that are these so-called means to ends, that you have to do things that are, you know, uh, let's say goods for the polity, you know, so the global one, you know, more so the national one. So how do we kind of start to make sense of that? That yes, on the one hand, you know, we do want to live with as little, we want to die with as little regret as possible. And oftentimes, more, most of us are, I would say, kind of implicitly stoic, especially in this country, because we think of virtue as a really great thing and as a fundamental aspect of character. But then on the other hand, a lot of times, and this is where I hope you could get into your politics a little bit in your career, a lot of times we do have to do things that we might look back on and say, man, oh, I can't believe I did that. I wish I really didn't have to. Well, I, I think regret and consolation are very closely related. If you if you ask what you have to console yourself for in life, it's often the, the things you regret. And you can really torment yourself with with uh, regret. I, for those who don't know anything about this, I was in politics for five and a half years. I'm a Canadian. 
I rose to be the leader of one of our major political parties. I led it into an election and we lost. And then I returned back to uh, life. What do I regret? I regret not winning for one thing, and, you know, because uh, I, I went into it uh, hoping I could uh, make a difference, not just for myself, but for other people. And it didn't happen. And I regret um, the things I, I regret are political decisions that I don't need to take you through because it's all water under the bridge. But I regret... Um, mistakes you know i regret things that i could have done that you know would have got me where i wanted to go i regret letting people down people you know thousands of people put their trust in me and i and then they saw those those hopes turn to dust i i do regret that um what i don't regret is is doing it and i think that's important you know you 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 can say well i just should never have done that um i don't have a I don't have a temperament that's suited to politics. I make everything complicated. I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I have all the vices of an intellectual, and those don't translate well into political life. But I have no regrets about trying. I have no regrets about putting my hat in an arena and taking all the garbage that came at you when you went into the arena. And I'm, in a way, I'm not proud of that. But I, I took some risks with my life, and I think that's a a thing, and that I think helps us to think a little more creatively about regret and consolation. I, I think the the real regret that I would have had is if I hadn't tried. The real regret I would have had is if I didn't take the risk. I, I think if you that helps, I hope helps other people listening to this to understand what it's appropriate to regret to have regrets for. Um, I think. Uh, not trying is worse than trying and failing. And and we have a culture that's pretty um, intoxicated with success. Yep. But believe me, you, you learn more from failure than you learn from any kind of success you have. And and you know, so I I I, I don't I don't feel badly about that. You raised another thing though, which is do you regret having done some kind of dirty things in politics, I don't think I did. I had to cut some throats. I mean, not, not literally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, had, I, had to, I had to get rid of people. You know, I had to right. fire people. I had to change teams. And I, and those are very, very difficult. You you feel you're betraying people who put their faith in you and all that. Now, that was, and occasionally I wake up and I see a face, you know, that, I, I had to get rid of, and I feel I feel bad about that. Um, but you can't feel too bad. I mean, it goes with the territory. You know, right. there's a certain kind of moral regret that's just weak, it seems to me. If you go in there, mm -hmm. assume political responsibility, you are responsible for making difficult decisions. That's what you're there for. Right. So you can't sit there and say, oh, oh, my God, it's so terrible, the things I had to do. I mean, come on. Don't, you know... I mean, Truman said, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. I mean, and I wanted to be in the kitchen. So you have to assume responsibility for those things. And, and I think it's not appropriate to feel regret about tough decisions. And it's not even appropriate to feel all that much regret for mistakes. Because <laughs> you go into that business, you're bound to make a mistake every hour of the day. 
It's, right. it's not the mistakes. It's whether you can recover from them that matters. And I, you know, I re recovered from some mistakes, but I didn't recover from others. So I, I think that's true. I, I also think that one of the cliches we have about politics is that it's this kind of Machiavellian world of, you know, you have to do evil in order to do good. I, I don't actually think of pol politics as being some separate moral realm that it's kind of infernal. I don't think that. I, I, I actually have as many regrets for things I did wrong in my private life as I do it for my public life. Mm -hmm. I think we have a, we've, we've created a kind of myth, myth that, you know, politicians necessarily deal with, you know, infernal wickedness. And I don't, I've yeah. met lots of politicians who, you know, the moral world you're in is one moral, one moral world. They're not two moral worlds. There's the private life, the public life, the moral categories that apply. And there's one set of moral judgments. There's one moral world. And you have regrets in both, it seems to me. Um, so, Well, and, and I think it, it could even be argued that if you are a good person, a good stoic, whatever, a virtuous, that essentially you have to die with regrets because the world is what it is and you have to get dirty sometimes. You have to, and if you are truly a good person, you it's, you know, the sort of the story of, uh, the biblical story of Jesus of sitting at the end of the table. The idea is if you are a good person, you, again, you have to know what your regrets are and you have to be able to live and die with them as opposed to somebody who's a little bit more on the narcissistic uh, end of the spectrum where the thinking is, well, oh no, well, I was such a great and virtuous per person, you know, I could live without any or die without any regrets. And I think that that's fundamentally unrealistic. So if we're talking about consolation, I think a lot of times what could help people, especially if they are living with regret, is just knowing that there's remorse for it, uh, knowing that there's some sort of semblance of amends, whatever that is, or there's some sort of attempt at them and attempt to remedy whatever the wrong was. And to accept that, like, yeah, this is a fundamental flaw of your character. And also an understanding of something you said, Michael, which is it's better than not to have done nothing right i mean yep. there there are plenty of people who are waiting to start whatever it is that you know might be their mission their purpose or or something that they know they should be doing that they're not doing and they're just stuck in an action at least if they try yes there's a potential for failure but you're going to learn more from that failure and have also less regrets at the end of your life there, there's so many people if you if you read what people say at the end of their life and uh the regrets that they have a lot of them are like oh i wish um you know i wish i had uh, uh talked to uh, more uh, girls i wish i had uh, been closer with my family i wish that i had done more adventures i wish that i concentrated a little bit less on work um these sorts of things right sure. Sure. yeah so i, I mean it, i think the sins of commission are less source of regret than sins of omission the right. things you didn't do are the things in a way that haunt you most um i think the other thing i'd add here is that i'm not i think innocence is overpraised and purity is overpraised i the one thing i don't want to be in life is an innocent life is you know life is very complicated life can be very difficult and the one thing you don't want to be is innocent about life. Uh, I, and so you want to have, we, we were just talking about virtue. I think you do want to try to be virtuous, but, you know, there's no such thing as innocent virtue. Uh, right. You know, I, you know and I, I hope that um, uh, having done some politics, it made me, you know, 
a little more realistic about both myself and and about the world and realism is the opposite of innocence Right. And there's this great scene from this film called The Big Kahuna, where so one of the characters says to the other one, so it's, the names are Bob and Phil. So Bob says, oh, what? So what is it? So you don't think I have character because what? I don't have any regrets and oh, I haven't done anything to regret. And Phil says to him, no, no, no. It's not that you don't have character because you don't you don't know, have any regrets or you shouldn't have any regrets is because you don't actually know what they should be. And this was kind of this big moment in the film where you realize, oh, man, wow. So the part of life is not necessarily to be pure and it's not really even possible. So then I would ask Michael so in terms of now going back to the philosophy would you say there's a kind of uh, an inherent sort of dichotomy and contradiction between being a good leader a good politician and even being a person in the world and being a good stoic and how would your readings of Cicero and Marcus Aurelius inform that um, it's difficult um, I think being a, a, a good leader means above all knowing yourself deeply i think that's probably a stoic idea you know you you can't lead well unless you know who you actually are and you know something about the temptations that you have faced in your own life so it's you're not quite as judgmental and quite as um condemnatory of other people when they succumb to temptation you have a kind of realistic sense of yourself and a realistic sense of them and above all, you know, leadership is about not being afraid and showing other people that you're not afraid. Uh, and and so courage is the virtue that, you know, we revere in, in leaders and um, hopefully courage combined with judgment, which is extremely uh, difficult. Um, I found it very hard in my political life to be clear in my mind whether I was being impulsive or decisive. You know, there's a big, there's an interesting thing. You, you can feel I must do something and you think that's being decisive. No, that's not being decisive. That's being impulsive. <laughs> you, feel you're, you know, you're pressured to make a decision quickly. A, a courageous leader, uh, is decisive without being impulsive. He or she takes their time, and that's what takes courage. I'm not going to be pushed. I need I need time with this one. Let, let's let's sleep on it. Is a is is what a wise leader often does. Sometimes mm -hmm. you don't have a choice. Sometimes you got to pull a you got to press the button and pull a switch, and you you don't get uh, you don't get a night to think about it. Um, and a great leader knows the difference between those situations. Um, but also, I think finally, um, leaders have to have a sense of a deep sense of their own fallibility. I mean, you play the percentages. You know, you you know, I, I've always been impressed with uh, leaders who were able to recover from their mistakes, as opposed to being crushed by their mistakes because you're bound to make them. Uh, and someone who can get themselves up off the carpet after screwing something else, s screwing something up, which you do, and can get up and then, you know, make the right choice the next day. All that's the the, the hard core of, of um, uh, leadership. And, and uh, you know, the, the other thing finally about leadership is to, is to see leadership in others and encourage it. I mean, because there are a lot of 
a lot of people that, you know, or leaders who just simply don't allow leadership around them. They, right. Know, right. They, it's a threat. Yeah. And monopolize, you know, I'm the leader, you know, good leaders will kind of say, boy, I'm good at this, but I'm, I'm really very bad at that. So I'm going to give that job to this person because they have better leadership on these issues than I do. And all that's part of the thing. And nobody gets it all right. And, and nobody embodies it all. Um, and, and finally, you know, leaders are also very good at consoling because uh, it's an undiscussed aspect of leadership, but I think we all remember Ronald Reagan consoling the country after that terrible uh, Challenger explosion and, you know, Bill Clinton consoling the country after the Oklahoma bombing and, you know, on and on. Leaders have to step up when when disaster strikes and just calm people down mm. and remind them of the better sides of the country that are apt to be forgotten when terrible things happen. Um, that consoling function is very, very important. I have a I have a chapter about that in in the book because I spend some time talking about Lincoln's second inaugural, which strikes me as one of the most wisely consoling uh, uh, speeches in the history of any democracy. And because he says, you know, he understands what his political problem is. His political problem is he's just won re-election in a country that has fought a brutal civil war. And he's got two sides of the country, North and South, who both believe that God was on their side. And what he understands as a political leader is that it's going to be very, very difficult to govern this country as long as both sides believe that God was on their side. Mm -hmm. And so he has to say, which is, I think, a sublimely wise thing, he says, in effect, or this is my interpretation of the speech, we human beings don't get to know whose side God is on, actually. Um, that's not for us to know. The, the ways of the wisdom, uh, the ways of the Lord are wise and just altogether, but we don't get to know. Our job is to do what is perfectly clear, which is to bind up the wounds of the wounded and console the widow and the orphan. And both sides, North and South, have plenty of widows and plenty of orphans. So let's get on with that job, which is clear. Refighting whose side God was on will divide us forever. Um, mm -hmm. Binding up our wounds together is something we can do together. And that is a sublime and consoling message for a country that had suffered uh, the loss of war. And that's an aspect of leadership that we we badly need in a, in a divided country. And, and you know, America's divided at the moment. I, you know, it's always been divided. It will always be divided. But we need we need consoling leadership in those circumstances. Right. I love that. And then so now this hopefully takes us into the book of Job. So I, there's a lot of kind of reflection or there is a reflection here between the he and Lincoln. And so what I love about the book of Job is it's a, as much a secular book, I think, as much as a religious one. And then so there's so much to take away from there, especially in the context of meaning and the lack thereof. So in this case, I would say 
I mean, depending who you are, because I can't say everybody or every religious person would think this way. But I think the idea is that whether or not, let's say if you do agree with the book of Job and you take it as you take its meaning at face value, the thinking is whether you do or you don't believe in God, at the very least, the meaning isn't objectively obvious to us. And so when you're thinking about consolation in that context and you're asking, you know, why me? And I think that often happens to us. I mean, I found myself saying that so many different times, like, why is this happening to me? You know, how unfair is this? Fairness is, you know, for us, I think as human beings, fairness is incredibly important. So the thing is, you know, the question, why did I deserve this? What did I do? And so now we're talking about and we're thinking about Job and Job constantly asked this question. Here was this person who was incredibly faithful to God and these terrible things happened in, in this really kind of linear, horrible way. And so he's consistently asking, why me? Why is this happening? I thought I did the right thing. So Michael, can we talk about the book of Job and the consolation there? Well, the book of Job is one of the truly most horrible stories in in all of our tradition, and one of the most difficult to understand. Um, but I put it at the beginning of the book because it was so emblematic of what makes consolation so difficult. Here's a person who suffers unjustly. Uh, God, it's very clear, God um, knows that what he's going to put Job through is unjust and wrong, but he does it anyway, and Job suffers. The part of the story that I focus on uh, because I think it's paradigmatic of human experience of suffering, is that Job eventually says, I've had enough. I've had enough of this. And he shakes his fist basically at the sky and says, I demand an answer. This is ridiculous. I've obeyed your, your rules. I've, I've been a just man. And you've afflicted me with these torments. What is going on? Um, you know, why me? But, you know, how, how is this compatible with the the idea of a just God? Explain this to me, God. And I think what's staggering about that story to me is this idea of human beings insisting that God answer them. Give me an answer. And it's an incredible affirmation of human dignity he's a you know he's one of the most sublime uh, and moving figures in all of literature this 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 guy shaking his fist at the sky and saying explain to me why i suffer and that tells me something else about human beings which is we're not like animals we're not like other creatures who just submit and endure suffering we are constantly asking why is this happening what is the meaning of it? What is the justice of it? Why is it fair? Why is it so unfair? And that's it's out of that that the search for consolation comes. We wouldn't need consolation if we just dumbly submitted like, like brute beasts to death and suffering and loss. No, we're all like Job. We all eventually stand up and shake our fist at the sky. And um, you know, and 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 that's what makes him such a um, a defining figure uh, for all of human culture, uh, because we're all Job's heirs, uh, and and we we all have our moments in life when we just simply cannot understand why something has happened to us, why life is so, you know, horribly unfair, um, and 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 that's why consolation is a kind of permanent part of the human experience we, because we're just built that way 
we're built to ask that question. Right. And it also, it makes it necessary because I think what the sort of the, the symbolism of the story is, is that that life is essentially absurd. So from my recollection of it, it was essentially God proving to Satan at the time that, well, Job's faith is unwavering, that it doesn't necessarily matter what I can do to him. He's still going to be a faithful subject. So that I think really points to how and, absurd. And, 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 and that's what's interesting. At a certain point, Job will not take it anymore. Right. God presumes on Job's infinite obedience, and Job surprises him. Um, and then, in turn, God surprises Job because the other thing that's incredible in this story is what Job is what God says to Job. God says, "Do you have any idea who you are talking to? <laughs> you know, yeah. get real. I am the maker of the universe. Do you think I care about your problem? You know." You know, wise up, Job. It's in, in a way, it's a kind of comic dialogue because it's just absolutely. I I still read it and find myself laughing out loud. God is thinking, why is this pesky little fool down on earth bothering me? I've got the whole universe to run. <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny. Do you feel like that story is? I mean, so I understand that you're saying that the story is more about. Uh, setting up the foundations of the um, subsequent stories that kind of talk more about consolation. We're just demonstrating that point that, you know, Job shaking his fist at God, like, uh, and instead of surrendering to, to that, uh, to the tragedy, right? But would you say that story is also about acceptance in a way, rather than surrendering? Yeah, that's a, that's yeah. a good point you're making. Um, the story ends with God, with Job submitting, Job saying, look, okay, I, I get it. I, I'm not, you know, what has happened is above my pay grade. I'm not going to understand the rationale of divine judgment here. Uh, and I submit and I, um, I submit to your law and your rule. Um, and then immediately he is restored to his barns and his cattle and his wives and you know and and it the story ends with him living for many score years and dying happily um so yes there is a kind of reconciliation at the end uh, there are a lot of people who find that kind of unconvincing to put it mildly um but it is the what the writer of this wonderful story intended us to to think at the end I'm not satisfied by it. I'm not satisfied by it. I, I I think there's there's an element of submission in Job at the end, which I just don't find believable. But people have been arguing about the Job story for two thousand years, and they'll continue to do so. I mean, I guess from from the perspective of um, many of our sufferings are of our you know made of our own mind, in essentially, essentially, right? I mean, there are things that have like that actually happened to us. But I suppose our uh, reaction to them or the narrative yeah, that we sort of co-create with the event, uh, you know, causes the suffering. So, I mean, I, I guess if you would argue that through re reconciliation or acceptance, you know, then it no longer becomes a factor, at least your side of whatever. And then you know what it also is? I think the story tells us that it's not personal, that it wasn't, you know, again, going back to the question of why me, it wasn't because Job was bad or deserved punishment. It just, that's kind of how it was. And you'll never really understand why. Yeah. Sure. I think that that's a good point. 
uh, it may be that the the wrong question to ask whenever misfortune hits you is why me? Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, it, it just, I mean, give you a, a, an example of this. I mean, my brother died before Christmas and after a long illness, we have exactly the same genetic makeup. Why him? You right. know, why did he, yeah. he's younger than I am. Um, and I, you know, this is a scientific, it's a chemical answer to that question, which we'll never have. And I, I just think that um, so many of the crucial elements of suffering in our own lives are actually inexplicable. They're random, it's right. chance, it's fate. Um, so the question why me is kind of arrogant. I mean, it just isn't, it isn't appropriate. I think mm -hmm. that's Thing you do learn from from the job story why me is the wrong question right and i love that and so and then i also love that when we're talking about consolation you actually give a a pretty a pretty fair but then also um let me just see not a prominent space for religion and religious arguments so most people especially now in our kind of day and age would say well you know religion is of the past it's kind of ancient and it's a relic of the times you know we need sort of an update or an upgrade to consolations but you know kind of hearkening back to jordan peterson and this i do agree with him on is that it, there's really not much else it's very hard to console a person outside of religion so when we're thinking about you know the idea that there's an afterlife that you'll see people let's say at some point after you're past or you've passed they've past, etc. I think the idea is, and I love that you say this, is that we should allow a space for that for people who feel as though they need it, that there isn't a one-size-fits-all for consolation. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I'd, I'd go further and, and say that I don't I don't actually believe this story that we're all that secular. I just right. don't believe it. Mm -hmm. And I, I also think there's a kind of militant secularism, which is not, not merely is, you know, religion kind of outdated, but it's malign and we need to get rid of it. I, I just, you know, I, I, I just, I don't believe that. And I, I feel it's incredibly stupid, even for secular people like myself to put the Bible away. I mean, the Bible, you know, I have a couple of Bibles on my shelf right up here. I can point it to you that I, that I, I turn to quite a bit simply because this is, this is a sublime piece of human wisdom. I mean, we we need, <laughs> it's simple, we need all the help we can get. We need it from Jewish traditions, Christian traditions, Muslim traditions, Hindu traditions, anything. We're in bad shape here. The idea that we can just jettison, you know, three, fourth millennia of human culture because we think it isn't true, just seems to me stupid and ignorant. And so we shouldn't be doing it. And I, I noticed when, um, you know, when my brother died, where did we end up? We ended up in, in the basement of his church because he was a believer and, and the old time religion came up and did its job, you know, right. and when we laid him in the ground, we had, we had the, we had the prayers we had the, you know, and, and this stuff is old and ancient and to be respected and um and the question whether you believe its philosophic premises seem to me to be beside the point now i've had many arguments with philosophers about this who say how can you have any dealing with propositions that you whose you know 
who you don't actually ultimately believe in, how can you? I say, well, I just don't think it's up to me to put this to the test. My, my view is that the Psalms are deeply consoling. St. Paul's epistle to the Corinthians is one of the, the most beautiful evocations of human love ever. And I don't want to lose it. It's not tradition to me. It's just, it's still alive. So why can't we, why can't we take that off the shelf too? No, for sure. Yeah. Listen, the, the, the wisdom is there, right? If somebody wants to be black and white about it, like say they're an atheist and they're like, no, we shouldn't even use anything from the Bible or uh, the Quran or the Talmud, right? Uh, or whatever, whatever religion, right? But uh, essentially, I mean, there, there, there's truth in all of them that that we can find, right? I mean, uh, technically, I'm, I was, I was born uh, in America. My, my parents are well, so I'm also ethnically Jewish, right? I'm not very religious at all. Uh, I wouldn't say that at all, but. Um, I like many stories that I've heard of, uh, regarding, let's say, Jesus, or there are books that I've read with like, quotes from Jesus or uh, Prophet Muhammad. And then you just there's 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 things there that you can really connect with on a on a sort of a deep level. It doesn't necessarily have to believe be that you know now you wholeheartedly believe in that religion or everything that's there dogmatically. Uh, you can be somewhat. What's a good word? I wouldn't Flexible. say. Oh, yeah, practical. I wouldn't necessarily use the word spiritual. I I, I think there's a term uh, like omnism mm. or omnist where you uh, see some sort of truth in oh. every religion or maybe sort of uh, or wisdom material. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, uh, I could connect with that. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. And then, you know, Michael, because I want to kind of as we start to wrap up, I want to go back to where we started. So in the difference between true and false consolation. So oftentimes yeah. people really do hate these platitudes where you, you'll you say something along the lines of, well, it was God's will or, you know, you, God works in mysterious ways, etc. Right. So how do we kind of distinguish between the true and the false? And why is the false so hard for people to take? Why does it even compound the trauma? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, and And there are people who think that all consolation is false. Uh, all consolation is false because there is no salvation. There is no redemption. Mm. Death is final. Um, uh, they've not. <laughs> they've not just gone into another room, and uh, and and linked to that is a is a a, a, a tradition that goes back hundreds of years of angry refusal of consolation. The, the book has a number of chapters in which I try and do justice to all the people who angrily rejected consolation as an idea, uh, only in my view to substitute some other form of consolation, in this case, philosophies of history that hoped that there would be progress after your life so that you would see progress and you could have hope for the future because of progress. Um, but there are there is still more strong views. I mean, if you listen, you know, the famous Dylan, Dylan Thomas mm -hmm. rage against the dying of the light, that, that captures a lot of people's feeling that we don't want consolation. What we want is a kind of angry rejection of our fate and a struggle to the last minute against it. And I I actually respect all that. I just think in the end, um, 
you can't live in angry refusal of our fate. Failure, loss, um, disappointment, and death are built in, baked in to the experience of, of life. And we can be comforted for it, certainly. But we, because we're like Job, we also seek meanings. And those meanings are not ultimate. They're not rationally demonstrable for all time. They're not eternal truths. Um, they are meanings that we generate together to share our suffering. Consolation is how we share our suffering. I love that. And that's the key thing, to share it somehow. Um, with, with a beer and a hug or with words, as you said, uh, the words are perilous. The minute you open your mouth in a moment where someone's lost someone, you, you, you're, you're taking a huge risk because if the words are false or the words sound false, the words sound as if you don't really believe them and you just pull them off a Hallmark greeting card, you're in trouble. Right, um, right. And, but the test of whether consolation is true is whether it is believed and provides comfort and solace to the person you're expressing it to. That's the test. And I, I don't think there's any eternally true consolation, but there is consolation that works for the person you're trying to console. And they come away and they say, thank you for saying that. That made a difference. That's wow. you know, that's the best we can do. Wow, I love that. Yeah, and even just like before we wrap up, also quickly picking up on the other thread. So we didn't really talk about secular consolations. And what's so interesting is that when you think about something like Marxism or science or the, the consolation of sort of scientific progress slash utopia, if you want to call it that, there's this idea that once we're part of or we conceive of ourselves as being part of this enormous part or a significant part of history, that that in itself is consoling. But what's so interesting about all of this is in ways, these are all sort of, these are myths, right? Maybe not necessarily religious, but these are all sort of... um. These are ideas and stories that we tell ourselves. So whether you're going to heaven or whether you're some part of some bigger whole, and it's always to, it's meant to sort of uh, make you a part of something bigger than yourself. So what's so interesting is there's this sort of again dichotomy and this kind of war between the secular and the religious. But often, I mean, we're not that different. Mm -hmm. And yeah, when you think about somebody like Marx and you think about the myth of uh, let's say the proletariat and the kind of belief in utopia and the belief in eternal communism, you know, uh, there's this kind of concept of okay, once we defeat and once we win this class war after engaging in class warfare essentially what even if we die you know there's some part of us that's going to live on it's going to be part part of a memory or the memory of the universe that maybe we won't necessarily be honored by the world but that's okay because we don't have to because it's always going to be a sort of staple of the universe that we were part of this proletarian revolution or if you're kind of into scientism and a little bit more dogmatic about that there's the idea of eternal technological progress and that we had a say in that mm. yeah well these are very powerful myths. Um, to me, they're false consolation. Um, I also think, you know, technological progress is false consolation too. Um, um, I don't think that, uh, uh, and I think our myths of progress are in some crisis at the moment because of climate change, because of all the th things we're struggling with. Long story short, I don't think we can put a story of history together that's very consoling. Let's just put it that way. 
we are stuck with ourselves with trying to help each other um, share the burden of life. And that's our job. Uh, I think we need fewer myths about history and we need much more attention to each other. Because the thing that haunts me about having written a book about consolation is how many unconsoled people there are out there and we can do something about it by sharing suffering together, telling each other stories, uh, exchanging, keeping keeping uh, us together through this. Uh, that's the only thing that seems to me unfailingly consoling if we do it. Yeah, so the kind of the message that I'm getting, and obviously please correct me if I'm wrong, is it's not that any of these consolations are in themselves true or false. That's not necessarily the point. The point is that there's a sort of, there should be a degree of tolerance there because we're so, not necessarily, I was going to use the term mysterious, but we're so sort of unknowing and we're so sort of ignorant that we have to use essentially what we can get and not to be too dogmatic about any particular consolation because ultimately, and Marxism is a good example because obviously we don't have worldwide communism and not even close to it. So mm -hmm. that's such a great example because the ideas, all of them falter in many ways, but again, the veracity of them is not necessarily the point. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think we have to be respectful of the consolations of others. There are strange ones, ones we can't understand, things that console people. We don't understand why they console a mm. person. Um, um, and um, it's a, it's about. It's about listening to each other. It's about caring for each other a little better than we do. Um, that's what I take yeah. away from. We're, and we're I I, I love that more than anything, you put people above reason. That's sort of my main takeaway from your work and of the book. And I love that so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you are. That You summed it up in a sentence. It took us a while to get there. But <laughs> <laughs> All right. I love that. So, uh, Alan, before we wrap up, final questions for Michael? Yes. Yeah, so not, not exactly a question, just something I love about the book. So actually, I bought the audio version of the book. I love, I love, love, love that you actually narrate the book, too. Uh, <laughs> not a lot of authors do that as far as that goes. Uh, so respect, number one. <laughs> and then two, it's nice to hear the actual author, you know, read the book in their own words. So that's, that's kind of, yeah, I'm glad uh, I... Uh... It was it was fun to do, and I hope there are people out there on the highway kind of listening to it, and hope hope it helps them. Yeah, absolutely. And I, what I wanted to ask is, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, and of course buy the book, uh, where can we do that, please? Um, well, I'm I'm sure I'm out there on Amazon. Um, you and, are, and I'm sure I'm. I, I have a a website, michaelignatieff.ca. CA is the Canadian thing because I'm a Canadian. It's all one word, michaelignatius.ca, and you can find lots of stuff I've written, and um, that's what I'm. That's where you can currently find me. Um, but I, and I am pretty good at answering mail and email and messages from people I've never met. So if you've got something to say to me, I'll, I'll come back at you. I love us. Awesome. Michael, thank you so much thank for coming so on. Much. This is such a great episode. A pleasure. Thank you. Real pleasure to talk to you. And I'm sorry I was late getting on the call. <laughs> it's okay. We'll talk to you soon. I hope you have a good okay. night. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. All right. That was awesome. Excellent. So, everyone, if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter.
We're at C's underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.